Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would draw our attention through these songs that we have sung, through the memory of our testimony, where Christ transformed our hearts, took out the heart of stone, and gave us a heart of flesh. Lord, I pray that you would draw our attention through the pages of your word where your revelation is declared to us in so many ways and powerful demonstrations of your glory. Please, Lord, use these means to draw our attention to your glory and that it might find us astonished in this place, amazed with hearts, softened by the glory of God unto worship and praise and adoration. And we would lift up our praises, extolling you, that we would be quick to give a reason for the hope within. Lord, when those around who have not met you yet ask a reason for the hope within us. I pray, Lord, as we lift up our hearts before you this morning, that you would captivate them with the knowledge of your truth, sweeping aside the infirmity of the flesh. Lord, I pray that your Spirit's work today would overcome areas of sinful distraction, sweep them aside so that Christ and only Christ is featured in our affections. I pray, Lord, that we would be struck out of possession of our senses, even as the crowds were when they heard your teaching. That we would cry out, Lord, glory unto your holy name. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. I pray that now as we open your scriptures, you would arrest our attention with the proclamation of salvation and the glories of God's righteous character revealed to us in your truth. I pray that in the giving and the hearing of your word, you would be glorified and the Spirit would do a mighty work so that no man may stand in your presence or steal the glory, but the enemy and all his plans would be thwarted as the light of the knowledge of the glory of God covers our hearts and through us this world. Eventually we pray as your word prophesies, as the waters cover the sea. Usher in your great kingdom, we pray. March forward through history. Use us as our ambassadors and equip us through the preaching of your word this day to represent you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Praise you, Lord, for the great privilege of worshiping with your people this day. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 22 this morning and let us behold God's word as it comes to us in this gospel and in the third of an exchange, a record of exchange between Jesus and the religious leaders. The title of this morning's message is Force of Law, Force of Law. The law of God, the word of God that is, is powerful, that is to say is powerful and effective. We find in other places, Hebrews 4 verse 12, for instance, that it's compared to an implement like a sharp two-edged sword. And this is a great example of the two-edged sword of God's law, effectively tearing down the enemies that would oppose God's word and also declaring to us hope in his great gospel. The force of law is evident through the word of Christ in this exchange. If your Bible is open to Matthew 22, why don't you, if you're able, stand with me and let us read several scriptures together. Matthew 22, 34 through 40. Here we have the infallible word of Christ. Listen as I read, verse 34. 
But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the, in the law? And he, that is Jesus, said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 40. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is the word of God. You may be seated. In Matthew 22, our verses this morning bring us to the third adversarial cross-examination attempt by the enemies, the ideological enemies of Christ, recorded in Matthew 22. The power of Jesus' response cannot be fully appreciated without some background, however, which we will attempt to do in this message. Supply some of the context going back to Deuteronomy, back to Leviticus briefly to touch upon the verses that Christ cites from. With the context in view, we will feel the punch, I trust this morning, of Jesus' answers in this section of the gospel. The full force of the law is wielded by its author, Jesus Christ, in this exchange to expose the sin of the self-righteous and to do something else, to proclaim in their stead the glory and righteousness of Almighty God. The twofold purpose of the law in this context is thus revealed to expose sin and to promote the gospel. Here we have the perfect example of this in how Christ interacts with his adversaries. There is a twofold dimension of the force of God's law and Christ's proclamation, including its destructive power against the enemies of the gospel as well as its, as well as its constructive blueprint for kingdom of God realities. There's a precious verse, very succinct, tender words, summarizing the beauty of Christ's teaching in this section that is summarized in apostolic form in 1 John. Turn with me there briefly just to pick up one verse this morning that summarizes the message of Christ and these heartfelt words. 1 John chapter 4, verse 21. And this commandment we have from Him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. We back up to verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. But he who does not love his brother, whom he has, or who he, whom he has seen, cannot love, love God whom he has not seen. And again, verse 21. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God, must also love his brother. It is a truly, in light of this cross-reference, it is truly a striking testimony, I submit to you this morning, of the divinity of Christ and the infallible, inarguable, inspiration, spirit-breathed power of Scripture. It is a striking testimony to the divinity of Christ and the inspiration of Scripture that is demonstrated in our text. Because we behold the word of Christ in simple truth 
As simple as that single phrase, this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. A tender truth, succinctly put. Yet this is not just a simple truth, but it is amazing testimony to Christ and His power and the Spirit-inspired Word that a simple truth can wield such elaborate strategic force in answering the best skeptics that the culture had to offer, the most ardent naysayers that filled up the ears of the people and influenced the masses apart from Christ, the lawless ones who were motivated to the bitter end to cling to their knowledge of what was true and reject the clear teaching of Christ in its clarity. Those who were the autonomous rebels who preferred to deny the truth like we see uh, or like the picture we have, the three-year-old having a tantrum who shoves his fingers in his ears and yells at the top of his lungs so he does not have to deal with the authority of his parents. This is the intellectual equivalent of exactly that when the Pharisees and the Sadducees opposed Christ. But this simple truth wielded such elaborate strategic force in the hand, in the word of Christ, that it brought the skeptics, the naysayers, the lawless, the autonomous, and the obstreperous, that means the ardently opposed, it brought them to their knees, shut their mouths. Behold this morning the word of Christ in action. A title for you, a heading for two major points this morning. The two-edged sword, or the two-edged response of Jesus to a lawyer. That is an expert in the law, the old covenant law, a representative Pharisee. Let us consider the two-edged sword of Jesus' response to this lawyer in Matthew 22, 34-39. Two major points. First of all, the destructive force of this exchange. Let us note in detail how Jesus shut up the naysayers with his appeal to the law, word of God. And secondly, major point this morning, let us notice the constructive force of this exchange. Not only the negative force to shut down those who oppose it, but the positive teaching, the constructive words of Christ that allow us to behold, for instance, the essence of the law the extent of devotion that the Word of God is warranted, and the expectations of the kingdom related to its declared truths. First of all, this morning, the destructive force of this exchange. A quote from Calvin to introduce this section. I love these quotes from Calvin, where he seems to summarize the air and the atmosphere of the exchange so well. He says of Matthew 22, verses 34 and following, The more hardened, speaking of the naysayers, in this case the Pharisees, on the heels of the Sadducees, the more hardened their obstinacy and the more incorrigible their rebellion, so much the more illustrious was Christ's triumph over both. And this victory which he obtained ought greatly to encourage us never to become dispirited in the defense of the truth. Being assured of success, it will often happen indeed that enemies shall molest and insult us till the end, but God will at length secure that their fury shall recoil on their own heads and that in spite of their efforts, truth shall be victorious. 
in spite of their efforts, three times tried, Sadducees, Pharisees, Pharisees again, in spite of their efforts to derail, to tempt, to trip up, to befuddle, to confuse, and to generate animosity and hatred and shut down the Word of God through Christ. Instead, what happened in every case was their efforts were recoiled upon their own heads and Christ's Word proved victorious. Turn with me to Luke chapter 7. While you're turning there, let me remind you of the roots of corrupt thinking, the theme of last week's sermon. We identified from the passage that preceded our text today, that is Matthew 22, 23 and following, when Jesus had this altercation, a similar one with the Sadducees, that there are to be identified three roots at least of corrupt thinking. That is, those who deny the word of, or those who oppose Christ, who are his enemies, they remain ignorant to three things. Number one, the word of God. Number two, the power of God. And number three, the justice of God. We remarked in a cross-reference last week of Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist's argument with the Sadducees, and where they butted heads, he said the same. He said, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? In other words, why do you remain obstinately ignorant to the word of God? He said, you are ignorant of the power of God. Do you not know that God can raise up sons of Abraham from these very stones? And then he warned them of the justice of God. He said, if you do not bear fruit in keeping with repentance, there will come a day when he who follows me will not just baptize with water like I do, but he will baptize with the Spirit and with fire in his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor. He will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. Well, this was a truth that the Sadducees and Pharisees alike had already been confronted with. And we have their self-deception on record. In other words, Already the truth had been declared, been declared to these parties, Pharisees and Sadducees alike, but they had rejected it. They had decided to stand against what had been clearly revealed. And we have this record earlier in the gospel account as Luke records it in chapter 7, verses 28 through 35. I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers, notice those two categories of the obstinately opposed, Pharisees and lawyers. In our section today, we have a lawyer and a Pharisee. The Pharisees and lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves not having been baptized by him. The Pharisees and lawyers saw no room in their own hearts for repentance. They decided by their own self-assessment, they had nothing to repent of. They rejected the baptism of John. They stood against it. Uh, Jesus went on to comment on their position and this kind of rebellion generally by saying in verse 31, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in a marketplace calling to one another, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say he has a demon. So pausing there, the naysayers look for excuses to reject the word of God through John the Baptist. They say, why should I listen to this unrefined man coming out of the wilderness 
uh, in rustic clothing and not eating with the sophisticated people, spending no time um, in the population centers and so on. So we just reject him out of hand, this hick from the sticks, and we, we refuse to listen to what, we say, what he has to say. We write him off. Verse 34, Then the Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. And Jesus' point here is, we played the flute, you did not dance, sang a dirge, you did not weep. It didn't matter the method that truth was delivered to these unbelievers, they were going to reject it anyway. But wisdom was justified by all her children. In other words, it didn't matter the method, what mattered was what was said and the evidence of the truth that followed the statement. John the Baptist was clearly affirmed, and rightly so, by those with eyes opened to what was obvious to all. He was a prophet of God. Yet for some reason, a sin was the reason, in fact, the Pharisees rejected it. And in the same way, Jesus came with even more testimony to the power of what He shared. But this willful self-deception had already taken root. There was already prepared excuses in the mind of the Pharisees to reject it. This corrupt thinking, ignorance, and not just ignorance as in, I've never heard it before, but willful, wishful ignorance of the Word of God, the power of God, and the justice of God was the double-down position of the Pharisees. And this account in Luke reveals a significant moment of truth denial for them. From this moment, Luke 7, 28, moments like this on, their wishful ignorance becomes an active commitment for the Christ deniers. And they begin to defend then their indefensible claims. And this is what's happening in Matthew 22. Second point under the destructive force of this exchange. We're noticing how the testimony of what has gone before and what is present in our text today uh, incriminates those who take issue with Christ. We've already seen that the evidence has been compounding. What John the Baptist has already preached Christ has already declared, and so their excuses are fading like so much dust, and they stand there under the lights, and the naked truth of their sin is exposed in light of Christ's uh, answers to their questions. And the second point under the destructive force of this exchange is that there's a, there are self-evident motivations that become more clear in the text. Listen to what Matthew Henry says. Speaking of the Pharisees, quote, they were more vexed that Christ was honored than pleased that the Sadducees were silenced. Again, they were more vexed that Christ was honored, the Pharisees were, than pleased that the Sadducees were silenced, being more concerned for their own tyranny and traditions, which Christ opposed, than for the doctrine of the resurrection and future state, which the Sadducees opposed. An important note in context that Matthew Henry is drawing out. We turn back in Matthew 22 to 29. Jesus answered them, in this case the Sadducees, you are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Verse 30, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, you, have you not read what was said to you by God? Verse 32, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at His teaching. 
This is important to note, the back-to-back record of these exchanges. Why? Because the Sadducees and the Pharisees were bitter rivals. The Sadducees, as we remarked last week, denied the future state. They denied a separate existence of the soul from the body in an eternal state. They denied that there would be a bodily resurrection. They denied spirits such as angels and demons. They were the sort of materialistic deists of the day, the skeptics who believed in a distant reality of God, but not one that was supernatural in the sense that there was an afterlife. Well, the Pharisees didn't believe these things. Their doctrine was ardently opposed. They were more scriptural in that sense. But you'll notice how Christ shut down the Pharisees and proved from the very law that they claimed to be experts in that their doctrine had no standing. And so you would think, naturally speaking, under these conditions, the Pharisees might say, Amen, Amen, Jesus. We agree with that. That's absolutely right. Thank you for speaking the truth. They did not. Why did they not affirm Christ? Why did they instead align themselves with the Sadducees to oppose Christ? This revealed something of their heart. You've heard the old adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. The enemy of their enemy, uh, that is the Pharisees' enemy, uh, was ultimately Christ. And the Sadducees were also an enemy of Christ. So we have this curious alliance that would otherwise never happen Instead of taking the opportunity to uh, side with Christ with, and the truth and oppose their arch rivals and doctrine, the Sadducees, the Pharisees instead, and this continues through the gospel, align themselves with the enemies of Christ. And this reveals the disingenuous nature of their heart. Do you see they cared little for the truth? That doctrine was not their chief concern? This exchange shows it. It reveals their false, their facade, the mask of what they thought or what they wanted to project. It tears it right off their face. It shows them to be hypocrites. And Jesus pointed this out in seven woes of judgment for the same in the next chapter. Woe to you hypocrites who walk across the world to make a convert. Then in the end, he becomes twice as child of hell as yourself. And this is what he was pointing out. It is the sovereignty of God that organized this exchange to peel off the veneer of self-righteousness to show the disingenuous hearts of those who were ultimately against Christ. Now thirdly, note the destructive force of this exchange. Already it's revealed that by multiple example, the Pharisees were remaining self-deceived. Secondly, it has unmasked their motivations to oppose Christ even in spite of the truth. And thirdly, there's an even more self-incriminating context when we go back to the original citations or the back to the original record from which Christ cited the verses in answer to their question. First of all, note Christ's answers again in verse 37. Christ said to him, to the Pharisee lawyer, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Turn with me to Deuteronomy while I'm reading uh, chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. So again, Jesus answers two ways as to the greatest commandment. First, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Verse 38, he says, this is the great and first commandment. And then 39, and a second is like it. You shall love 
that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is where the summary in the law, in the Torah, first five books of the Bible, appears that Christ identifies as the greatest command of all. Notice the context of the citation from Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Verse 4 is extremely famous. The most, arguably the most, of a familiar and readily recognized scripture in the Jewish culture. Perhaps their equivalent of John 3.16, which most of us could rattle off the top of our head with the second thought. So could every self-respecting Jew. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It was in a Jewish tradition called the Shema, which is the Hebrew word for hear. And this saying was the creedal summary. It was the statement of faith for confessional monotheism. This is what the children would be catechized with from the day that they could speak. It was said in the morning, it was said in the evening. You would often hear it, no doubt, in prayers over meals and so on. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Now, you'll notice the very next verse is what Jesus cites as the chief of all the commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Thus, in the context of the Shema, Jesus uh, calls the faithful Jew, the Jew who has an understanding of his Old Testament scriptures, to what the, the Shema calls us to listen to. Attentive listening to the revelation of God is modeled in the very verse Jesus quoted. In other words, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And then what should we pay attention to? And how should we listen? And what demonstrates faithfulness unto this chief of all values for me as a religious Jew? Namely, verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. How could the Pharisees oppose Jesus' answer? They, they could not. There was no disagreeing with this statement. Jesus had pinned them to an affirmative. And in the book of Mark, in chapter 12, we find the lawyer, in fact, answers in agreement. You are right. You have spoken correctly. But I would like to draw your attention even a little beyond this context of the Shema to the rest, or a couple verses in the rest of the chapter. Notice in verse 12, Deuteronomy 6. Then take care, lest you forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God, you shall fear Him. You shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst, is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and He destroy you from the face of the earth. So notice the context. If you do not hear, O Israel, what can you expect? 
if you do not fear the Lord by loving Him with all your heart and soul and might, what will be the consequences? Well, if you go in so doing, the waywardly, serving other gods, denying His name, know that God is jealous, His anger will be kindled against you, and He will destroy you from the face of the earth. And notice with particular attention, verse 16. Here's one way you can know that you are in direct opposition to the context of the Shema and the greatest commandment to love the Lord with all your being. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested Him in Massah. In Matthew 22, what are the Pharisees doing? One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Do you see how the context of Deuteronomy 6? Absolutely, in, an, in a stroke of genius, because Christ is God in flesh and has complete and comprehensive knowledge of the Scriptures, not only answers in a way that they could not deny, but also answers in a way in context, shows the Pharisee to be antichrist, anti the Lord his God. And he has the jealousy and the anger of God turned against him if he presumes to test the Lord his God by joining with the Sadducees to trip Christ up. Remember 22.15? When the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his talk, what were they doing? Joining with the Sadducees who came to him who say there is no resurrection. And they, likewise, tried to catch him in his words. Jesus, verse 18, was aware of their malice, of the Pharisee, the Sadducee, and so on. He says, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? How could these, the Sadducees and Pharisees, claim to have any standing with respect to the law of God that they so, uh, that they so hypocritically venerated? and claim to be experts at, a lawyer knowing its ins and outs if they in this very moment are presuming to test the Lord their God. The destructive force of this exchange shuts up and condemns the naysayer. Every man's sin is revealed to its very core and essence in light of the righteousness that God's law requires. And the religious so-called self-styled experts are no exception. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 19. And in this context, a little more briefly, but the exact same thing is in view. In Leviticus 19, here we have in the Holiness Code an amazing summary of the second table of the law as Jesus quotes from the record of the law, but we have more than that in context. Notice 15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. For you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. And here's the summary. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. For good measure, note the self-incriminating context 
of the second greatest commandment that Jesus responds to their question with. Notice what, is, what precedes it immediately. You shall reason frankly with your neighbor. You shall, uh, you shall not, or, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. Let me ask you this question. Were the Pharisees and Sadducees reasoning frankly with Christ? Absolutely not. We've read already. They were seeking to entangle him in his talk. They were judging him without cause. They were unrighteously, uh, unrighteously holding him before their own court, saying, defend yourself without just cause. Christ, aware of their malice, again said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? And inciting the second most important commandment in the law, again, one which they must agree to, he shows in context their hypocrisy. Because not only were they presuming to reason, not reason frankly with their neighbor, and to uh, charge him with, charge their neighbor with evil as a slanderer without righteous cause, but they were doing this to the Lord of glory. Now, in Mark chapter 12, in context, those who heard this exchange refused to ask Jesus any more questions. And we can see the power of the law, the force of the law, as it is deftly wielded in the words of Christ. And we can understand, thus in context, why they were afraid to ask him any more questions. They had learned their lesson the hard way. In Mark chapter 12, um, the Pharisee, the Sadducees came to him uh, in this section, and it's recorded of those who claim, uh, it's recorded the exchange of those who claim uh, that there is no resurrection, and that's followed uh, by a scribe in verse 32 who said to him, You're a right teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there's no one other, and there's no other beside him, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and the sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And you notice how the tables are turned? Jesus is now testing the man based on his answer. And then this phrase, verse 34, Mark 12, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more Questions, why? Because their sin would be exposed with his answer. Why, you might ask, was this question raised in the first place? Well, the commentators have different ideas. It's almost as if some record that they meant to catechize, or that they were condescending, that this question was brought in a condescending way, as if to catechize a child. Or, in other words, this is something that should obviously be known. And so in asking the question, it is to say, you are ignorant, or I assume that you are ignorant. Or it could have been to stir up controversy over the contested question. So regardless of the intent, Christ knew that they meant to test him and trip him up. So the answer, or the question remains, why did he choose to answer their questions? Well, in answering the questions in the masterful way that he did, compelling them to agree, to agree with him, he reverses, he turns the tables, reverses their argument against them, shows them their sin, and demonstrates the force of his argument, and also shows in this exchange how deserving these parties are of the judgment 
he goes on to proclaim in chapters 23 and 24. The destructive force of this exchange helps us to understand the intensity and severity of the seven woes that are proclaimed in Matthew 23. And then the destruction of Jerusalem itself, which typified this kind of attitude and behavior, rebellion against the Word of God. Secondly, this morning, second major point, the constructive force of this exchange. As Jesus answered the questions, He demonstrated three things. First of all, the essence of the law. Secondly, the extent of devotion God's Word warrants. And thirdly, expectations of the kingdom. This is the constructive force of this exchange. Jesus identifies the essence of the law when he says in verse 36 or 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. When Jesus identifies this summary as the great and first commandment, he identifies the DNA, if you will, of the law of God. DNA, I think, is a good illustration because that's the essential part of us that if you lost, the rest of us could not be formed. You see, we can be reduced in our essence, biologically speaking, to something very small and something compared to the rest of us, very simple. And we get down to the basic building blocks of human life and you get to that essence. You get to that indispensable part, the DNA. It's not as if the DNA is in opposition to the rest of the body. No, it's a, it, it is that the DNA is responsible for the growth and development and for the organization and engineering of the rest of the body. In the same way, this, the greatest commandment in God's law, is responsible for the rest. It's the seed that blossoms forth into all, other, all the other 600 plus injunctions and so on. You can boil it down to its essence and its DNA. It is not the greatest, that is to say, in exclusion to the other commandments in the law of God, but instead it's the greatest because it includes all the others in it. How do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind? Well, in keeping and in hearing and loving, treasuring, manifesting, obeying all the rest of God's word and law. And so in this way, this, the greatest commandment, identifies the essence. Perhaps another illustration um, could be like the hub of a wheel to which all of the spokes are attached. If you lose that hub, all the spokes fall off. It is central. It is important. This, this is reflected in the original language in words that are translated, in a word that's translated in the English, depend. Notice verse 40. Christ says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The entire word of God hinges, or more uh, accurate with the original language, hangs on this law, or hangs on, this command, on these two commandments. All the rest of God's word can find a common point of origin, or a point of dependence, as if you were to hang everything on this point. So this is the constructive force of this exchange. Jesus is not only exposing the sin of the naysayers, he's also teaching us something powerful about God's law. That we can, it's a systematic theological note, in other words, in order to understand the coherency 
and the continuity of the rest of the law of God, we find in the word of Christ what is foundational, the DNA strand, if you will, what is the most important. Also under the essence of the law, Christ has affirmed uh, its two-part nature. One part is uh, proclaims our duty unto the Lord. The first four of the Ten Commandments fall along these categories. This category shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's identified in four specific ways in the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. For instance, you shall not make unto me any graven image. Don't take my name in vain. Remember my Sabbath day to keep it holy. In this way, in verse 37, Jesus identifies what is commonly termed the first table of the law. It is most important and central. It is the love of the Lord that establishes everything else. In fact, we've noted that this is, in fact, the shape of the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians in the first two chapters identifies our relationship with Christ, predestined before the foundations of the world that in Him we might have redemption, lays out the powerful, meaningful, actual salvation of all of the elect in Christ. And then what does it do? Therefore, what is the book? How, how does the book take shape? Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of your call. Paul, in the shape of the old covenant law, lays out one of his epistles according to that pattern. He first identifies our duty to the Lord, our relationship to him, and secondly, goes on to expound how that establishes our relationship with everyone else. Between believers, husbands and wives, parents to children, even masters to employees and, to, uh, and uh, servants to uh, slave owner, or slaves and so on. Slave owners to servants and the like. So this uh, is, is, is a great way or in identifying these categories. Christ has summarized the two tables of the law in a way that becomes structurally important for even the apostolic record. He identifies the duty to God and the duty to man in a twofold distinction perfectly summarized by these two citations. And then building on that point, and again under the essence of law, of the law, let us notice that there is a hierarchical priority between these two. In other words, it is more important, most important and foundational that we love the Lord our God and then and only then do we know how to love our neighbor as ourselves. The second is like it, he says. But the second follows the first and great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then secondly, uh, once that is established, you will know the content of love for your neighbor as yourself. Um, Seth and I did a little response to an atheist that wrote an opinion piece in our local newspaper in Brainerd. And one of these common objections to the uniqueness of Christianity you may have heard before one of the common objections is, well, really, everything that's virtuous about the major religions of the world can be boiled down to the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Atheists, skeptics, agnostics, and God-haters of our day, much like the Sadducees and Pharisees of old in the same type of spirit, they love to say that the golden rule is not unique to Christianity. Now, what is so important and what they, what they miss in that objection is that there is a hierarchical relationship to the two tables of the law. You do not know how to love your neighbor unless you first love God. Your neighbor may wish some sort of abuse. I, literally, this question was 
posed to an atheist recently in a debate I listened to. They said the definition, the atheists claim the definition of a flourishing society is where the most preferences get satisfied. And this is a brilliant question that was posed to them. Okay, let's say we have a hypothetical. We have an entirely sadomastic population in the world, in the future, okay? And half of them enjoy inflicting pain, and half of them enjoy receiving pain, okay? So everybody's preferences are satisfied. Is that a flourishing society? And I suppose to his credit, the atheist was somewhat consistent with his premise and says, I, I guess I would have to say yes. Does that sound like a flourishing society to you? Half of the world loves pain, the other half inflicts pain. So one half of the world kills the other half of the world and everybody's satisfied. Of course not. What is missing? Well, the golden rule is there insofar as do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I'm doing something that the person asking for. But what is missing? The first table of the law. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And the Lord your God has declared the terms of holiness, thou shalt not kill. Your affections, your preferences, your desires are subject to Him. He is first, you are second. The golden rule, so-called, loses its content when God is out of the picture. There is no merit, there is no virtue, there is no power in it at all. There is a hierarchical relationship between the two. You can make this same case for civil law. I've heard some say that it is the government's obligation to enforce the second table of the law. Thou shalt not steal, commit adultery, don't lie, and so on. But it's not their responsibility to pay much attention to the first table of the law. Well, I'll tell you what, government will fall apart very quickly, won't it? Why? Because how do I know what's mine so that my neighbor won't steal it? According to Karl Marx's ideas of how property is divided up? Or according to God's ideas, how he delegates his property? After all, it's all his anyway, and he, steward, he allows us to steward it according to his terms. So you will have a complete failure socialistic society if you uphold the second table of the law, everybody share without the first, whose property is whose property according to God's terms. In the same way, marriage. Right now, our society is totally confused because we try to uphold the second table of the law in our nation without the first. Uh, you know, homosexual marriage comes to mind. Well, what is marriage in the first place? You must affirm God, who has the authority to ordain, according to His created order, what the institution is in the first place before we can define what adultery is. If you want to watch this nation, well, you will. You will see this nation fall apart at its very seams unless it repents and repairs to the standard of God as ruler, Lord, and transcendent authority over all of life. It is an absolute necessity, and we learn it from Matthew 22, 34 through 39, through the very words of Christ, who summarize very succinctly, who summarizes very succinctly, very clearly, that there are two great commandments First and most importantly, love the Lord your God. Secondly, love your neighbor. Powerful, constructive force. Has the ability to set a nation on a right course, to preserve a society, to allow for human flourishing, and so on. Secondly, the constructive force of this exchange. We see it in the extent of the devotion that God and His Word and His law is warranted. 
Notice that there's a threefold affirmation we are to give to the truth of God. You shall love the Lord of God, Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Very briefly this morning, although there's much overlap, you can't say it all without stating those three. That is the extent of devotion that we are to give to the Lord. Is there any aspect of our being that is neutral or should be neutral to the things of God? Absolutely not. Everything, our entire being, is to be in submission, subject to Him. The heart, that is in the original language, the idea is the fountain and seat of the thoughts, passions, desires, appetites, affections, purposes, endeavors, and inner intentions. All of that ought to be devoted wholly in service to the Lord. Secondly, the soul, root word, suke, from which uh, we get the familiar term psyche. Soul is one's distinct personhood, identity, his unique individual personality. You don't have the right to identify yourself apart from the Lord. No one is, has, uh, has any autonomy apart from Him. Instead, you owe your life and breath to what God has breathed into you so that all of your personhood and identity is to love, is to be directed to the Lord in love and service of Him. And thirdly, mind. Mind, in the context of the original language, refers to proper, full-orbed reasoning, to valid, balanced conclusions, logic, if you will, and the exercise thereof, full breadth of meaningful, critical thinking. So you notice there is no neutrality. The intellect, uh, the, the intellectual pursuits of man, the disciplines of the mind, the nature of our personality and being, and the inner core passions and desires, appetites and affections, the Lord is jealous for them all. This is the extent of devotion that the Lord requires, and rightfully so. So if this is what the law demands, certainly we all fall short. And that brings us to our final um, thoughts for this message today. Is there anyone that can keep, a, keep it for us? And this moves to the expectations of the kingdom. Romans 13, 8 through 10, 10, 1 through 5, Galatians 5, 14. These themes that Christ expounds all become important reference points in the apostolic teaching and record. And what they go on to expound is the following, that what Christ has prophesied in chapter 5 of Matthew 17 through 20, I came not to abolish, but to fulfill the law. He does so in his own law keeping. And when we see, therefore, the relationship between our justification, being declared righteous before Him, and our sanctification, we perhaps can summarize it in this phrase. Expectations or lawful or law-keeping for the believer is fulfilled through us only upon being fulfilled for us. It's fulfilled through us. The law is fulfilled through us only upon being fulfilled for us. That is, Christ ultimately kept the law so that His righteousness is transferred for us and the, to us, and that evidence works its way out in our changed heart and life, which gives, therefore, or as a consequence, more thoughts, passions, desires, appetites, affections, purposes, endeavors, and inner intentions heavenward to His glory. Calvin states the problem this way, It now appears from this summary that in the commandments of the law, 
God does not look at what man can do, but at what they ought to do. Since in the infirmity of the flesh, it is impossible that perfect love can obtain dominion. For we know how strongly all the senses of our soul are disposed to vanity. In other words, if we are to love the Lord with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and adding the Deuteronomy category, all our strength, the totality of our being, who could possibly do it? No one can. But Christ has done it. In Matthew 26, we've talked about through the course of our Matthew study, the arc, if you will, of Jesus' ministry and teaching. The gospel begins to be progressive, or is progressively revealed clearer and clearer as we get through the course of his instruction. And when we get to Matthew 26, we see the hope of law fulfillment becoming ours when Christ says, he took this bread, verse 26, blessing it, broke it, and giving it to the disciples, he says, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. None of us can keep the law, but all of us ought to keep it. Thank God that Christ, the perfect law keeper, was crucified for us, and that in him, in his blood and broken body, is the forgiveness of our sins. Rejoicing in our salvation and in, the, and in the knowledge of the finished work of Christ, we can join with the psalmist and with the testimony of scriptures that the law of the Lord is perfect and it is like treasure. It is powerful as well, a destructive force to silence the rebellious, but also to show the repentant their sin. And in Christ and his uh, law-keeping, the law becomes in its imputation for us, the justification for us as, Christ, as God looks on Christ and counts us worthy because he, our substitute, was sacrificed for us. Let us close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would remind us of the power of your holy word. If there are areas that need to be illumined, by your perfect word of righteousness, of sin. As we see them, may we repent quickly. If there are any who fellowship here, who yet remain like the Sadducee and Pharisee, unsubmitted to your word, unbroken, Lord, and obstinate in the flesh, I pray that you would bring them unto repentance. Lord, for those of us who this message has reached our ears and it strikes a chord of desire in us, that sanctification might further Complete, uh, see its outworking in our lives. I pray that we be transformed by the power of your word a little more today to the image of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And it's in his holy name we pray. Amen.